Welcome to the Stanley Avenue Church of Christ podcast. We are going through the book of Acts, and we're beginning in Acts chapter 2 today. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read that passage, then we'll make some comments from it, reading from the NIV. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a loud sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from the heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard his own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, uh, they were asking, Aren't these uh, all who are speaking Galileans? How is it that they uh, are speaking to each of us in our native languages? Uh, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we all hear them uh, declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them, saying, well, they have too much wine to drink. Now, Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These people are not drunk, as you supposed. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what's spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and coming day of the glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because his right hand, and I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, and you will not let your Holy One see decay. And you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and is buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him an oath that uh, he would place one of his descendants on the throne. So seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, 
And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all who, whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save your souls from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at what the many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. All the believers had everything together and everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they would continue to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a pivotal passage uh, for us to know in the church. Uh, this is when God first establishes the saints as a collective whole. Um, Jesus has just left uh, the presence of the disciples roughly a week earlier to this, and the disciples are just simply waiting for the Holy Spirit to come on them, uh, which Jesus promised back in the previous chapter. So Pentecost uh, it was a, a popular day. This is one of the feast days that the Jews would celebrate. It took place 59 or 49 slash 50 days after the um, after the Passover. And this uh, gathering uh, was something that all Jews from everywhere would want to come to. It was a feast of first fruits, and that's an important note because God is about to establish the first first fruits of His church uh, on this day as well. Uh, the gathering of the disciples, however, when it says in verse 1 that they were gathered together uh, in one place, this is something that they had already established as being a regular occurrence. This is something that they did every first day of the week. We find at least two or three occasions uh, where the disciples gathered together on the first day of the week at the end of the Gospels, and even in uh, chapter 1 in Acts here, we find that they were meeting together uh, constantly for prayer. And so they were, uh, they were already meeting together. This wasn't anything new for them, uh, even though it was to celebrate uh, the day of Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit does come upon them, and it, it talks about uh, a great wind and fire. Uh, fire, it was envisioned, remember, by John the Baptist when he said that, uh, I baptize you in water, but the one who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Um, and, and so that fire aspect uh, in John's uh, preaching seemed to have to do with uh, this judgment or the testing. Uh, and so we do read a couple passages, even in the New Testament, uh, that our faith is tested by fire. Um, and so in a sense, the Holy Spirit is kind of testing each of us in each of our hearts whenever he appears, and we either accept or reject him. So in this case, the apostles accepted him. They, they had already given themselves over uh, to the work of the Lord, and so the Holy Spirit is able to use them, and he speaks, uh, or he uses them to speak in tongues. So in verse 4, they're speaking in tongues, and this is a sign of power and authority. This, this draws people together. They're wondering, 
about what all this means. At the end of the chapter, remember that uh, they they felt the sense of awe because of the wonders that were taking place through the apostles. When they saw these men, they could tell they were uneducated. Um, they were from a region of the country of Palestine that you didn't expect to have highly educated men. Of course, anybody that knew these men probably knew they, they couldn't speak in all these languages. Now, it was generally accepted that you could speak in, say, uh, you know, perhaps Greek or, or Hebrew or, or Latin or, you know, several dialects. We, we find that common through the book of Acts. But notice the list of, of the dialects that are described in the, in the native languages uh, that we have here described in verses um, um, 5 on down even through verse 11. And uh, this is an interesting point to make, that uh, this is a sign not only of power and authority from God, this is a sign of fulfillment. Uh, the, the speaking in tongues is, is rather unique to this New uh, Testament period time, to this introduction of the church. We don't find this type of thing happening really anywhere else in the Bible. Um, and uh, it's a sign, I believe, of fulfillment going all the way back to Genesis 11 and 12. You remember all the way back in Genesis 11 when um, the people of the earth kind of joined hands together and united to build a tower for themselves that reached into heavens. And of course, God thwarted their plans, but remember how he did it. He confused their languages, and he split them up into countries based on the languages uh, that he then gave them. And so uh, they would group off, and they separated to populate the earth. And that was what God had originally intended for them. And then the contrast in Genesis 12, where it says that uh, Abraham, or Abram, was a man that God came and blessed Abram, and he said, I will grant you a great name, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So uh, God separates all the people of the earth in chapter uh, Genesis 11, and then he promises to unite all people of the earth in chapter 12 through Abraham's seed. And uh, that is what this, pro uh, this passage, I believe, is fulfilling. Uh, all the people of all these nations uh, are coming together. Uh, they are all Jews, but they represent all the different uh, uh, tongues of the earth. And they're gathering together, and they're all hearing the gospel in their own language. And so now they are being united. And what's interesting is at the end of the chapter, they're all gathering together, uh, having all things in common together, even though they come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different tongues. Uh, they're able to unite through uh, through what the Holy Spirit offers uh, through Jesus and the gospel. Um, so the, uh, the signs of tongues and speaking in tongues is not an arbitrary miracle. This is something that was directly related to fulfilling the prophecies uh, of the Old Testament and uh, initiating the times of fulfillment in, uh, under the Messiah. So the Holy Spirit himself, you find, is providing this opportunity. Uh, he's the one who comes and provides the great and violent wind that catches everybody's attention and draws them together. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives them the power, uh, enables them to uh, uh, speak in these tongues. And uh, so he's the one opening the doors uh, to allow all these things to happen. It's not really up to the to the disciples and the apostles to uh, uh, to force uh, when and how people listen to the gospel. They just take advantage of whatever opportunities God sets uh, before them, and that's the way He begins the church here. 
All right, so Peter's message, as he begins to stand up and speak, um, he starts explaining why all these things come to pass. In verse 16 through 21, he quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And uh, this passage in Joel is about uh, the restoration of Israel. Uh, Joel is anticipating uh, the time in which God will restore Israel back to its glorious state, and uh, really, it includes the way in which all men will uh, will come to God. And yeah, this passage that uh, Peter himself quotes uh, mentions that. This is all flesh in verse 17, as uh, Peter is quoting. Uh, God pours out his Spirit on all mankind, or all flesh. So again, it's the idea of, of all of you from all the nations are coming together. Uh, God is, is giving the restoration of Israel to all people. And of course, we understand uh, via some of the New Testament passages and even a couple chapters on down that the Gentiles, uh, people who are not Jews, all of us, uh, we share in this promise just as much as the Jews did. Uh, this is what God had intended from the beginning. Uh, this uh, gift of the Holy Spirit that he was giving them uh, here ignored class system. Uh, in the, the verses that uh, Peter is quoting, talks about uh, all the different people who will receive the gift of the Spirit. Bond slaves, uh, servants, men, women, everybody. Uh, everybody is receiving this gift. Uh, God ignores our class systems. It doesn't matter what your background is or what hierarchy you're a part of uh, with your political status or family status. Everybody is uh, basically coming to the Lord on the same terms uh, through what the Holy Spirit is offering us. Peter also quotes uh, some apocalyptic language. When Joel starts describing things like uh, blood and fire and vapor and smoke in verse 19 and 20, the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood. Uh, this is apocalyptic language. It's kind of this over-exaggeration. And uh, this was a common uh, literary technique. It wasn't anything unheard of at all. And uh, really, the apocalyptic language... Uh, was paired with a transition of a new era. So every time you read language like this, the sun being darkened, moon into blood, things like that, uh, you're talking about a transition to a new era. And that's uh, what Joel is anticipating, a restoration of Israel, a new era in which God and the Holy Spirit will live with his people. And uh, Peter says that's starting now. Uh, this is exactly what God had in mind from the beginning. A new period in history is beginning as the Holy Spirit is now going to dwell with all men. And uh, so it's a call for everybody in verse 21. Everybody, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Uh, this is the same thing that's uh, mentioned over in Romans chapter 10. In verse 13, Paul quotes from this passage too. Uh, this is a call for everybody. All uh, have the opportunity to come to Jesus to receive this gift. So uh, Peter starts to make this application then through Jesus. In verse 22, tells them uh, that Jesus is the one that uh, all this is pivoting around. And God has already proven, he says in verse 22, God's already proven Jesus' status as a prophet. Uh, somebody who's working miracles. He has authority to speak from God. Everybody knows this. It's undeniable. Remember back in John chapter 9 and verse 16, uh, the, you know, 
people are wondering, at the, even the, the, the leaders who are denying Jesus' authority, they're wondering how can Jesus be doing these miracles if he's not from God? Or over in chapter 11 and verse 47, they knew uh, they could recognize uh, that what Jesus was doing was more miracles from God. And uh, even on ahead here in Acts chapter 4 and verse 16, the, the, um, the council as they gather together, they recognize the same thing, and, and I'll just read that in Acts chapter 4, verse 16. The, uh, the council saying, what are we going to do with these men? The fact that noteworthy miracles are taking place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Uh, it's undeniable uh, to their eyes and this audience that is witnessing these things. All of them are eyewitnesses. You have thousands of eyewitnesses to the miracles that are happening here. Not even the critics could deny it. Uh, so this is the evidence that uh, Peter appeals to to establish Jesus' credibility as the prophet from God. But that doesn't end there because Jesus is more than just a prophet. So in verse 23 uh, this is something that God knew would happen, that they would crucify uh, this prophet. Uh, God knew what he was doing from the beginning. This was foreknown by God, even predestined by God. Uh, this wasn't an accident. Uh, the crucifixion was very purposeful, and it was to the point of saving us from our sins. Without it, none of us would be saved. And so God knew what he was doing with all this. And what's interesting is Peter applies personal responsibility to everybody for this. Uh, there were individuals here who were part of the mob that crucified Jesus, to be certain, but there weren't, uh, everybody who had gathered here wasn't part of that group. There were people from all over the earth that were sitting at home um, or perhaps on their journey when these things were taking place. But by way of association, association with the Jews, association by way of our own sinful lives, if they could share each of them in the crucifixion of Jesus, and Peter targets them as the ones who did this, we are no different. Uh, we who live thousands of years after the fact, we are responsible for crucifying Jesus too, by way of our association, uh, via our own sins and the need for Jesus to die. And so this, this is a message for us just as much as it is a message for them. So in verse 24, you have, uh, I love this passage here, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Jesus to be held by its power. Jesus is life. Th that's who he is, and uh, that's the way John describes in the beginning of his gospel. And it is impossible, then, for death to hold on to Jesus. Yes, Jesus died. God died. And yet, he is so powerful that uh, he comes back from the death. And that's something that we just simply cannot comprehend and is one of the magnificent things about the gospel. In verses 25 through 28, Peter points to an Old Testament uh, passage here to describe the resurrection as being foretold. Psalm uh, 16, uh, specifically here in verses 8 and 11, uh, David is talking about death. And it's interesting that this passage implies a death whenever he talks about um you will not abandon, verse 27, abandon my soul to Hades. The implication is my soul is there. It is in death. I have died, and yet you will not allow me to to remain in my death. And so it's, a, it's an implication of death and resurrection, something they didn't really realize uh, that it applied to the Messiah. They, they did not expect the Messiah to die, and yet all the Old Testament passages point to it. 
And so, uh, a death and a resurrection was foretold by David. The point there in verse 29 is this couldn't have been a self-prophecy. There's no way David could have been talking about himself because guess what? He's still dead. We have his tomb to this day. And uh, as opposed to Jesus, whom, you know, where is his body? It's nowhere to be found. And um, in verse 32, he gives the evidence of witnesses. It's all of us who are speaking in tongues, who are doing miracles, by way proving that we are speaking a message from uh, God, from deity, are telling you we saw Jesus alive again. And we do know that from other passages there were more than just these uh, apostles that witnessed Jesus alive, uh, but they're all attesting to it. And then in verse 33 through 36, this is the important part, once Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended and now sits on the throne. This is what makes him the Messiah, the Christ, the one whom they have been anticipating, the uh, the son of David uh, that everybody's been waiting for. And uh, th- Jesus is sitting in heaven now. You have just killed him. Uh, and so here you have somebody who has been granted all authority in verses 34 and 35, He's been granted all authority to rule and to punish and to make judgments. You have just killed him. And so uh, when the people hear this, they're they're cut to the heart. And when they ask in uh, verse 37, what shall we do? This is a, a desperate cry for deliverance. Uh, they are responsible for have crucified the Lord's Messiah who is now sitting in heaven waiting to squash them. And so they ask, what are we going to do about this? And uh, it turns out that the same one who is sitting ruler uh, of judgment over us is also the one who died for the purpose of saving us from our sins. And so the call is, in verse 38, you need to repent. You need to turn your life around. Put your old ways behind you and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, baptism consistently through the book of Acts and in all the New Testament uh, epistles is about uniting ourselves with the death of Jesus. So Jesus died for us, but we must unite ourselves with his death um, rather than resist his death. And so via baptism, we are united with his death. Romans 6 talks about the process being a, a death into the water and a resurrection into a new life. And so uh, we must die into Jesus' name, and we are resurrected through the Holy Spirit. And he says, um, if you die with Jesus via baptism, you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is eternal life. Uh, So uh, the Holy Spirit provides us life and resurrection uh, from the process. And so uh, we then have that seal of promise. Ephesians 1 talks about the Holy Spirit is the seal of promise for eternal life uh, and for salvation. So I believe that the gift of the Spirit here in verse uh, 38 is specifically referring to life and and what every Christian receives when we unite ourselves with the death of Jesus in baptism. Um, Now it turns out that the the Holy Spirit was very active in providing many of these Christians the ability to work miracles, uh, and a lot of that was officiated through the authority of the apostleship, and that's a study for another time. Uh, But here in verse uh, 41 we find that they received... Uh, the message, and those who received the message met that message with action. Uh, Those who were described as receiving it were baptized. And so uh, the question for us is, how are we responding to the message? If we claim to receive the message of the gospel, 
Are we giving ourselves to the death of Jesus? Have we been united uh, into his name, uh, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit via baptism? And that's what Jesus preached at the end of the Gospels, the end of Matthew, uh, and the end of Mark. And uh, so if we want to claim the message of Jesus in the Gospel, we need to act like they acted. They met that uh, reception with action, and so we must as well. And now then, through the rest of the chapter, verses 42 through 47, we uh, read the description of the church. Now that it has just been formed, thousands of saints have now been introduced into God's new kingdom in this new era. And so now, what are they going to do? And verse 42, I think, is important for us to study. They devoted themselves. In other words, they... um, They made sure that they were going to keep these things in high value, and they were going to continually do these things. And those four things are, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, which represents God's authority, because that's where they can find access to what Jesus wants them to do. They dedicate themselves to the fellowship, which is their relationships with one another. Uh, When we have been united to Jesus, we are united with each other. And uh, so these people from all backgrounds are dedicating themselves, devoting themselves constantly to forming a relationship with other people whom they might not otherwise get along with. Thirdly, they're dedicating themselves to the breaking of bread, which I believe is referring to the Lord's Supper. And uh, that's a consistent terminology to refer to uh, the, the thing that Jesus had established back at the end of the Gospels before his death to remember his death by. And then they're dedicating themselves to prayer, uh, which is their relationship with God. If you have just had or just formed a relationship uh, reuniting with your God and Savior, Prayer should be an, an automatic built-in response system and something that uh, the church needs to continually devote itself to. So if we are going to be a church like this church was, one that was established by the Holy Spirit, one that was approved by God, we need to dedicate ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the writings and God's authority. We need to be devoting ourselves to fellowship with forming bonds and relationships with God's people It doesn't matter what their background is or whether you would normally get along with them or not. We need to devote ourselves to the breaking of bread, which is remembering and honoring uh, Jesus' death and resurrection in our lives. And we need to dedicate ourselves to prayer, forming and uh, uh, encouraging that relationship that we must have with God. Verses 44 then and 45, or really 43 through 45, talks about the unity that they had and the care and the love that they had for one another. Here we had uh, members of the church now that came from thousands of miles away, and uh, rather than returning home, they wanted to stay with their brethren. And because of that, you had this influx in population in Jerusalem that was unsustainable. So, to meet the need, they shared and had all things in common. Uh, In verse 46... We kind of find a deconstruction of verse 42, where starting with they have one, they gather together with one mind in the temple. And that, of course, is referring to prayer. You see over in chapter 3, verse 1, that Peter and John were going up to the temple, the hour of prayer. So uh, they were gathering with one another for the purpose of prayer. Also over in Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, Paul's prayer for them is that they as a church can be of one mind. And of course, the the problem that the church in Rome was facing was that discrepancy between backgrounds, Jew versus Gentile. And so they need to be willing to get over that. 
We need to as well. No matter what the background is of your brethren, you need to be of one mind with them. Dedicate yourself to fellowship and to prayer. Also, uh, in verse 46 here, they were breaking bread from house to house. So there was no one place large enough to hold the thousands of people uh, who were now part of the church, and so they'd have to subdivide into individual houses to break bread with one another. By the way, also remember over in Luke chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, that uh, Jesus met with some of the disciples the very day of his resurrection uh, to break bread with them, and their eyes didn't recognize him until he broke the bread with them. And then in verse 35, Luke 24, verse 35, says specifically that they were able to recognize Jesus through the breaking of bread. And that was what Jesus had anticipated even before his death. And then, which is separate, this is important in verse 46, separate from the breaking of bread, they were eating meals together. Uh, The breaking of bread is not the same thing as eating your normal meal. And Paul makes that distinction over in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, We gather together as a church for the purpose of breaking bread, honoring the Lord's death and resurrection through that process, Uh, but then eating our meals together is something different from gathering together as a church and is something that the saints devoted themselves to continually on a daily basis. Uh, They just met together. They had fellowship. They had honest love together, we're told. Uh, gladness and sincerity of heart, uh, or simplicity of heart. They had this unified honesty uh, for one another and care and concern to want to be with one another. This really is a great goal for every church. If we're going to be like the churches that God and the Holy Spirit established, we need to uh, also devote ourselves to these things. And the end result in verse 47 They were praising God. They had favor with all the people. Uh, They were welcomed by all people. They were not uh, uh, people who were repugnant. Uh, They were not people who pushed other people away. They were a welcoming sort, and everybody realized that these were good, honest people. Good work was taking place through them and true love, and everybody recognized this, whether or not they were in or out of the church. And uh, God saw to their increase, and, and it says that uh, God was adding to their number those who are being saved. This is something God's work uh, is, uh, is for, and so we do the best we can, certainly, to be God's utensils, but in the end, we are not the ones with the power or even the authority to add to the church. God causes the increase because their number was defined by those whom God saved. Uh, our ch- the church number And uh, the members of those who are being saved are not defined by our registries and the ones that we put in the name books uh, ourselves. Uh, The saints are defined by God, and uh, he is the one who is saving. He is the one who is adding to the church and to our number. We need to respect his authority on that. And whomever the Lord saves by his will, we need to accept them as well, uh, no matter their background or who they are. We thank you for listening, and I hope you can join us for more studies through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter, and uh, please join us again. Thank you.